Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning, so thankful for your word, um, how it challenges us and changes our hearts and draws us closer to you, God. We, uh, we're so thankful for Jesus, so thankful for the life he lived and the death he died, and most importantly, that he rose from the grave. God, be with us now as we look at your word. Would you encourage us with your truth? challenge us in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, okay, so I've got a question for you. It's a very near and dear question to my heart. I'll give you two guesses as to what it's about. <laughs> no, not sports. The second thing. See if anybody knows me. Almost. That's a close, it's a close one. Ice cream. Ice cream, yeah. Okay, all right. So I got a question for you. When you're at home, when you're at home, be honest. Raise your hand if when you're done with your ice cream, you lick the inside of the bowl. No? Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, be honest, right? Yeah. It's okay, right? It's okay, to, it's okay to lick your bowl at home, you know, right? But how many of you do, the, do this at the restaurant? Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. Okay. Um, interesting. That, wow. Okay. That's, that's more than I expected of you bowl lickers. Uh, continue that tradition in public. That's, that's impressive. No shame. You know, in some ways, I'm proud. Let's be honest. Um, uh, I do actually draw a line from, I don't do that in public, I don't, I try not to, I don't know if I've caught myself doing that before in public, anyway, um, so it's okay, you know, generally speaking, for some of you don't listen to this rule, obviously, uh, it's okay to lick your ice cream bowl when you're at home, but maybe not, maybe not for some of you in a restaurant, <laughs> some of you it, it is, so, okay, uh, see how confusing it can be to follow the etiquette and rules of the world? Um, so th then there's this other iteration of ice cream bowl licking, right? Like for those of you that lick at home and don't lick at the restaurant, <laughs> maybe the, how many has that narrowed it down to? I'm not sure, maybe two. Um, okay. Uh, if you have company over, do you lick the bowl when you've got company over at your house? Depends on the company. Okay. So there's exceptions even to this. Um, so that's fun, right? That's a fun example, bowl licking of ice cream. It reminds me of parenting, right? So much fun, right? It's so fun. Do this, don't do that. Don't do this when this is happening, except when this is happening, do that instead. Like we give a plain rule, right? Or, or we show a plain action, I lick my ice cream bowl. Guess what happens when we go out to public? Kids do what we do at home and they lick the ice cream bowl. I'm like, no, 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 not here. That's not where we lick the ice cream bowl, just at home, and not when we have company, you know. But for some of you, obviously, that's not the rule, so. <laughs> um, the rules and things that we follow can be a lot like this, right? Like, we don't know, okay, what is the right thing to do in this circumstance or that circumstance? And when, when this specific situation applies, how do we operate? Um, well, for the past few months, we've been looking at Joshua, uh, and we're coming to a point where they're going into a time of covenant renewal. And Joshua, um, you know, it reminds me a bit of 
uh, this handoff that has been happening between Moses and Joshua. And once Moses was this leader, now Joshua is the leader, and a new generation has risen up, and now Joshua is tasked with telling the people of Israel, this is what you are supposed to do. This is the law of the Lord. Here it is, and here is how we follow it. And you might remember that uh, as we went through Deuteronomy, rewind, okay, back in there, we gave, he gave us the Ten Commandments, right? Very simple, ten rules that you need to follow, okay? But then... In addition, the Lord revealed to Moses how those laws were going to apply, how they were going to be worked out when they went into the land in the specific scenarios. And so this Passover has happened between Moses and Joshua, and we've seen him kind of muddy his way through this process, actually. Uh, we've seen the Jordan River, right? Uh, Joshua leading the people through the Jordan River. We've seen him uh, leading them into battle at Jericho, and we've seen him most recently leading them through uh, the ups and downs of the battle of Ai. And so today, after all that Joshua has learned and the people have learned about the relationship with God, we find them in a place of covenant renewal. And so um, I do have a, a map for you. I think there's a map. I think I've got a map again. This is great. See, this is a map. Okay. Um, you guys recognize maps? This is a map. Um, and so... So you can see down at the bottom, you might recognize that from last week. That's where we had the battle of Ai and the battle of Jericho shown there below. So they started in Jericho, then they went to Ai, then they, you know, didn't listen to the Lord, so they got beat, and they went back to Ai and did it again the way the Lord told them to. Um, and now, today, we're looking at their movement up northward to Shechem between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, okay? This is like a, a day or two's uh, journey uh, north, this huge group of people, right? So this is where we find them today when we're going to read verses 30 to 35, which says this. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as, the, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered, it on, offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them at first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward... He read all the words of the law, the blessing, and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. And so we see this moment where uh, Joshua is now doing what Moses told them to do when they entered the land. He said, okay, when you get into the land, you're going to go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and you're going to set up a time of covenant renewal. They didn't exactly know when that would happen. Like, they knew they had some battles to fight, and in fact, they did. They fought the Battle of Jericho. They fought the Battle of Ai, and then it was time to go and celebrate this renewal of the covenant. And the truth is, at this point, as a generation, they have learned a ton about what it is to follow the Lord already. 
right? I mean, you saw them in, uh, in the Jordan River. Like, God opens up the Jordan River for them to walk through, just as he said to do. It's at flood stage level, and he lets them through on dry ground. They've seen the power of God move them forward. We've seen them sanctify themselves and set themselves aside, and the Lord reminding them that this battle is not their battle, it's the Lord's battle. The Lord showed up to them and said, hey, listen, uh, I'm not for Israel, and I'm not for, I'm not for Israel or against Israel. I'm not for the Canaanites or against the Canaanites. I am for who? The Lord. And so this is the Lord's battle that is going forward. So they learned this. Uh, they got a little prideful after they defeated Jericho, after the Lord defeated Jericho, and thought they were doing it in their own effort, and went and decided how they were going to attack Ai. It turns out they had sin in the camp, and, and that was a, a terrible tragedy. They, they lost many members, and they were, they were run away from that war. And God said, hey, there's, there's sin here. Like, you went out to war with sin. Not only that, you didn't consult me about how you were to go to war. You just went. And so they've learned some things about listening to what the Lord has said and being the people that God has called them to be. And so it's fitting now that they are in a time of covenant renewal where they've gone before the Lord, as Moses said they should, uh, with, this, uh, with this renewal ceremony. So I'm going to walk through verses 30 to 35, and there's a couple things that I want to point out. Um, and the first is this. Joshua read every word of the law that this new generation could know and follow the Lord. Okay, so first thing to know about the covenant renewal. You might have heard it as I read through it. It's like he read every single word. All the law that was written down, he read. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the people. Joshua read every word of God's law. Sounds like a simple statement, but there are millions of people gathered on two mountains uh, listening to Moses read pretty much the entirety of Deuteronomy. When was the last time anybody read Deuteronomy as a whole? Like, the whole, right? You know, it's a big book. It's like 36 long chapters. Took us a long time to go through it as a church. Um, and, and so Moses, or Joshua is there, and he's reading the entire law, pretty much the entire law, probably like chapter 5 on, uh, but still, starting with the Ten Commandments onward. He reads the entire law before them. From the instructions uh, for this covenant renewal ceremony, uh, they, they were given, uh, these laws were given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and, and the, the whole of uh, Deuteronomy. And there's a couple of things that we can learn from Joshua reading every single word of the law. Uh, the word, uh, sorry, the, the law functions for us on two different levels, okay? There's two levels to obeying God's law. It's important that the people of Israel heard this law, and so that's why he read every single word. And the first reason is this. God's law helps you flourish in life. I think it's the next thing. Is it the next thing? Yeah, cool. God's law brings flourishing to our lives. So in, in chapter 27 of uh, Deuteronomy, we actually give an outline of what they're, to, what they're supposed to say, some of the things they're supposed to say to one another on this mountain. And it starts with some simple things like this. 
Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of craftsmen and set up in secret. And all the people shall answer, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on a road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. As a people, they are affirming that the law of the Lord is telling us what is right and what is wrong to do. This is a simple explanation of what is good and what is not good to do. Um, And this is the first function of God's law. It creates flourishing in our life, okay? Got a couple examples for you. Uh, By disobeying God's law, we hurt others and we hurt ourselves because we aren't fulfilling what God has revealed to us about what we are to be as people, okay? So if we disobey God's law, we are not flourishing, right? God has revealed what it is to be a human, what it is to love one another, what it is to treat someone. Like, is it right to mislead a blind man on the road? No, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Like, if you took anything from the Ten Commandments, if you came away and like, you know what, it's kind of funny if we mislead this blind man on the road. Like, no, cursed be you. That is terrible. You're hurting someone. And so, a couple quick examples for you. Um, So, I work in a coffee shop, obviously. You can see we do the things back here. Um, And pulling an espresso shot is like very simple. Very simple thing. Just put coffee in a basket and, and push 212 degree water through it at nine bars of pressure. Okay? It sounds like a lot of information, but it's actually very simple. You just put it in there and you push a button, at least on our machine. Some machines are even easier. But uh, pulling an espresso shot with too much or too little coffee creates a problem. Okay? You got too much coffee in there. You're going to over-extract the bean. It's going to taste too bitter and gross. Okay? And some of you are like, this doesn't apply to me. Sandy's like, this is ridiculous. Coffee is of the devil, and I don't want anything to do with it. Um, <clears throat> if you put too much coffee in that basket, you're going to over-extract the thing. If you put too little, it's going to be watered down and even, even grosser than you might even expect it would to be. Right? Um, but the result of disobeying, right, the the laws of espresso making is that you're going to have a sad customer, right? That's what's going to happen. You pull a bad shot and put it in your drink, the customer's going to be like, this is gross. And there's some things that result from creating sad customers. You know what happens when you create a sad customer as as a worker? What? They go away. That's one big one for the boss, that's for sure. He doesn't like the customers to go away. That's bad. What else? They don't come back. Yep, they go away and they don't come back. See, we covered it. <laughs> what, you got another one? They give you a bad review. Okay, bad reviews too. They leave, they give you a bad review, and they don't come back. Those are like the worst things, especially for the owner. But what about the, the barista? What's bad for them if they prepare a bad cup of coffee? Got one? My kids are into this. Okay, they'll be bored. Isaiah. You failed. There's a sense of failure. Okay, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you as a barista have just kind of not paid attention, right? Like, you haven't, you haven't paid attention. So, you know, the customer's not going to give you a tip. Not going to give you as much a tip. That's going to hurt, right? They won't come back. 
They might, they might ask you to make it again, which is like the worst thing as a worker, like for a customer to do, because you don't want to do anything because you're a worker, right? And you don't like work because work is work. And the customer's like, this is bad. Can you make it again? Like, ugh, and make it again, you know? So there's bad things that happen when you don't, when you don't listen to the instructions, right? And the same is true with God's word. Like, God's word is given that good things would result. He created you, right? He made you to function the way that you function. And just like this machine is made to function in a particular way, if I do it wrong, it's going to produce a bad result. And the Lord, in his graciousness, has revealed to us his law. He said, this is how it should, you should do this. Like, love your father and your mother. Honor them, that, and that it will go good for you. Hey, you know what? Here's a good one. Don't murder anybody. That's a good one. You know, let's keep everybody alive, right? Um, so by disobedience, we hurt others, and we, we don't fulfill God's, uh, our God-given purpose for us. The flip side of that, um, that God's law helps us flourish, is that by obedience, we will be blessed because God's law is good for us. He made us. He loves us. He knows what is best for us, and he's revealed his moral law to us. We say this all the time in my house. Um, you know, yo, kiddo. Our instructions are for your good. Our instructions are for your good. Right? The classic example. Uh, I don't tell, I don't, uh, you don't tell your kids not to touch a stove because you're some mean, authoritative, controlling overlord to them. Right? That's not the reason why you say, hey, don't touch the stove. Right? You say don't touch the stove because you don't want them to get burned. Right? You know there's a stove there for a reason. It's a great thing, actually, right? We have a stove for a great reason. We didn't put it there to torture them with mindless, purposeless rules. We put the stove that gets hot there for a great reason. We cook things. Pizza, cookies, you know, lasagna, eggs. Like, all these things are good things that come from a hot stove. And so there's some rules around that, right? If you touch it, you'll get burned. You'll get hurt. Your hand will get hot. It will, it, your fingers will get cooked instead of the food. It will hurt you. You will cry. We might have to go treat you for burns. Like, there are bad things that result when you touch the stove. This is a good thing. If you obey, you get good food. If you disobey and touch the stove, you get cooked hand. This is bad, right? So God's laws are not meant to be some mean thing to us. They're meant to create flourishing and goodness in our lives. So that's the first kind of piece of God's law, right? It, it brings flourishing into our lives. The second thing is this, that God's law defines our allegiance. It defines our allegiance. Do we believe that God is for our good or do we not? Do we believe that his rules are good? Do we believe that he gave us a stove in our kitchen that good things would come? Or do we think that, oh, he's just mean and wants me to not have any fun. I want to touch that stove if I want to. All right, go ahead, touch the stove. It turns out it's still hot, if you, even if you think it's going to be fun. There's a limit, right? God's law defines our allegiance. Are we for him or are we against him? So back in Deuteronomy, we found these statements after the curses, the initial curses were read. Hey, listen, if you don't do this, it cursed you if you lead a blind man off the road, right? Uh, and people say, amen, don't lead a blind man off the road. That's really terrible, right? Um, and then furthermore, 
He says there are blessings and there are curses that are associated with following the law. Okay? If you are give your allegiance to me, then you will be blessed. If you give your allegiance to something else, then you will not be blessed. You are my enemy. You will be cursed. So Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 3, it says this. The, uh, these are the blessings that are to be spoken on Mount Gerizim. Okay? So there's the two mountains again. Get back to this covenant renewal, right? There's the two mountains. On Mount Gerizim, we're blessing the people, speaking the blessings of the Lord if we are allegiant to our Lord. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you, on high, uh, set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. The opposite is true. If your allegiance is not to the Lord, curses will come upon you. Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 17. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments or his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Our obedience to God's law shows our allegiance to him, shows that we say, yeah, God, you are for my good. Your rules are for my good. I trust you. And about you as a, a parent, when you see your kid trust you, something wells up in you. You're like, thank you. You know what? I want to give you something because I can see that I can trust you and that you trust me. When trust is built, right, there's this relationship that grows because we are now one. We are unified. We are on the same page. You see the reason and the purpose why I say, don't touch the stove. You're like, hey, that turns out that hurts thing. That hurts me, right? You see these things, and as a parent, you want to bless that and encourage that and pour out favor on that. But if you keep touching the stove and taking us to the hospital for burn, you know, uh, burn care, I can't trust you with the stove, right? And so I'm like trying to take things away from you to manage your uh, lack of control of yourself, and a distrust is built. That's the basic thing that's happening here with the blessings and the curses. This is the same way a healthy workplace works, too. If you're in a healthy workplace and you do good and you're loyal and you work hard and you follow the Lord's instructions, then things go well. If it's a healthy, okay, if it's a healthy workplace. If you're doing your job and you're loyal and a good worker, it's rewarded in a good workplace. And you move up and you're promoted and all these things. But if you don't work hard and you don't listen to instruction, then you won't get promoted. You are not aligned with the company. This is how a healthy workplace functions. This is how it functions under the law of God. This generation of Israelites has come to realize that this is the case. In their journey through Jordan and Jericho and Ai, they realize that God can be trusted, that his rules are for the good of the people. And that sin is taken seriously, right? So the sin of Achan was taken very seriously. He was removed from the community in spite of the fact that he was an Israelite. So they understand, and it's time for them to renew their covenant before the Lord. All right, so first we saw, then, that Joshua read every single word of the Lord. 
The word of the Lord is important because it brings flourishing to our lives and defines our allegiance to God. The second thing I noticed in this passage, this covenant renewal, was that everyone was there. Everyone was there to hear the word of the Lord. You might have caught it as we read through. There wasn't anybody excluded uh, at all. Uh, Verse 33 says, Sojourner as well as native-born. They're elders, officers, and judges. Okay, and at the end, verse 35, it says, uh, these words were read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. All the people, the men of war, their wives, their kids, those who decided to sojourn with Israel, the whole of Israel was there. Everyone was present, listening to this word of the Lord being part of this covenant renewal. And just as it was instructed in Deuteronomy 27, half of the people were on Mount Ebal, and half of the people were on Mount Gerizim. Deuteronomy 27, 12 to 13 says, When you've crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Okay, so you've got 12 tribes separated evenly on these mountains, okay? Just imagine this, you know, 2 million people separated in half, and in the middle there is an altar. And they're going through this process of declaring the law of God unto one another and saying, yeah, cursed be the one that leads a blind man off a path. This guy's a dummy. That's ridiculous. Amen, Right? Um, And so they're going through this law, and they're reading the entire law of God. But I want you to notice something in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30 and 31. It says, at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. So there's an altar in the middle, but the altar's not in the middle. The altar's not on Mount Gerizim. It's on Mount Ebal. It's at the place of the curse, right? The curses are spoken from Mount Ebal. And that's where this altar is placed. Not on the place of blessing, but rather on the place of the curse. It is in the middle, but its middle is kind of like middle-ish. On Mount Ebal, this altar is built. This altar for making burnt offerings and peace offerings during the covenant renewal is built on Mount Ebal. What is the significance of this? When we disobey, right? When we don't follow God's law, brokenness results. And this brokenness is only restored at a cost. Remember, when we walk through burnt offerings and peace offerings, there are two different things. The burnt offering is given to the Lord. The whole thing is burnt up. It acknowledges that my sin cost me the whole thing. I burn the whole thing up to the Lord. I say, man, a curse will come upon me if I continue in this sin. So that's on Mount Ebal. Burn offerings to the Lord. Acknowledging that the Israelites are broken before God and the only thing that can restore them is something that costs them, a sacrifice. The same thing also, peace offerings, because, you know, our sin doesn't just hurt God. It's not just personal it's relational. 
peace offerings were had, and in these peace offerings, a part of the meal was burnt up, but another part of the meal was eaten between the parties that are reconciling. If you offended someone, you would give a peace offering, and you would make peace with the person you have offended. And you would say, a, a divide has come between us, right? And I'm going to sacrifice something to say, I am sorry. This cost me to sacrifice something. We think about the Old Testament sacrificing. They must be slaughtering animals. They must have so many animals. No, they didn't eat a lot of meat. This was a huge cost to them to say, I'm going to sacrifice something. What was the purpose of that? It created an earnestness. I'm giving up something of real value to my family and my ability to sustain my family. I'm giving it up to say, this cost me. My sin has cost me something. So it makes sense that the altar is on Ebal. They're acknowledging that their sin against God and against one another has brought brokenness to them. They're acknowledging that continuing in this sin will bring ultimately curses of the law that they have just affirmed. If I continue in this sin, then these curses of Ebal will come upon me. And so I give this sacrifice and say, I'm sorry, I, will, I repent of this. I want to be true to the covenant of the Lord. There's not something magical about burning or cooking meat. I mean, there's, there's some magic to smoking meat. It's just really great, actually. Um, but, but in terms of the, celebra- the ceremony, this is about demonstrating the earnestness of the worshiper, saying, this cost me something. There is a cost to my sin. It has broken a relationship, and I want to acknowledge that by giving something up. When it's to the Lord, I give up the whole thing. I'm not eating anything of it. I'm burning the entirety of it up. When it's between me and a man, or me and a woman, then I'm burning part of it, and we're celebrating together that we are reconciled together. It was to demonstrate how genuinely remorseful they were of their disobedience to God's law. So, okay, I know you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? Why are we talking about a dang covenant renewal in Joshua? Why, did Blake, why didn't Blake just choose to, you know, do, you know, uh, John 20 and just preach on the resurrection or, or 1 Corinthians 15 and just walk through that and just take a break from Joshua for a minute and just come back to this? The fact is what's revealed in Joshua is that there is a cost to our sin. There's a cost to our sin, and there's a curse that is upon us when we sin. And this isn't new to them. This revelation to the people of Israel isn't new. Sin and its curse are not new with the revelation of the law of Moses to the people of Israel. When Adam and Eve sinned and ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately felt the curse of the sin. It's not something new that came about when Israel came on the scene. It's not like it came up with new rules to give the people of Israel. It's just they had been separated from God for so long, and now they're taken out of Egypt, and God says, hey, I want to remind you what it is to follow God. This is what it is to follow God. Set aside a day every week to acknowledge that that God is in control of all things. Treat your brother and your sister with love. Just as I have loved you, love them also, is how Jesus sums it up. 
But this sin and this curse is not something that's new. It's been around since Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 7 to 13 says, then, or verse 7, just leave it verse 7. Genesis 7, 3, 7 says this, when they sinned, when they ate of this fruit, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And going on, it said, they hid in shame and fear. And God says, how did you know you were naked? He knew at that moment, he knew before, that they had eaten of the tree that they weren't to eat from. The cost of their sin was separation from the unity they once shared with their creator. Instead of walking in infinite blessing, they received the curse of sin. Chapter 3, verse 14 and following. And so after they took of this uh, fruit and ate it, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust of the earth you shall eat all your days. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and not eaten of the tree which I, com and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. They broke the relationship with their Father in heaven. And during our time studying the Old Testament, we've seen the humankind struggle with this over and over again, with each other and with God. From the flood to Babel, from Abraham to Moses to Joshua, and even to our day now, we feel the curse of sin and how it has separated us from fellowship with our Father in heaven, with our Creator God, whose laws are for our good. He's not giving us laws to be mean. He's not telling us what to do to say, gotcha. He's saying, if you want to flourish in life, then trust me, I made you, I formed you, I brought you out of the earth. What I command for you is good. And we feel this separation. Once we had life, but now because of our sin, we have death. For the wages of sin is death. We have a lot of questions today about what the rules are. What's the boundary? How far can I push it? What's the next thing? What can I do without getting in trouble? And too often our world is telling us, just look inside yourself. Look in here. It'll tell you what's good. Just look inside. Just whatever you're feeling is good. So just do what you're feeling because that's a good thing. Proverbs 16, 1 to 3 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. If you follow what you're feeling inside, it will feel pure to you. 
But God is saying, the Lord weighs your spirit. The Lord weighs what is good for you. Not you. It's, you're always going to feel right. You always feel right until someone shows that you are wrong. There's never a time in your life. You just, trust, just check yourself. Right? Even when you don't know things, you believe that you, you understand that you don't know things and you're right about the fact that you're ignorant of something. Right? You believe you are right. The things you do, you do because you believe they are the right things to do most of the time, either by justification or by just complete ignorance. You believe you are right. And Proverbs says, all your ways seem right to you. They seem pure. But it's the Lord that weighs the Spirit. He has revealed to us what it is to follow Him. He's revealed the character He desires for us. It's as simple as looking to his word, saying, God, what have you told me to do? Deuteronomy 5, 6. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God saved you from slavery. You were enslaved to sin, and he brought you out. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven or in the earth beneath or in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to those thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, your sojourner within your gates. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. We recognize God has given us all we have. And it is only by his strength that we live. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. These are the rules. They aren't to hurt you or harm you. They're for your good. That you would be in unity with the Father in heaven. And that you would be in, uh, in love and encouragement to those that are around you. And the fact is, if you look at the law of the Lord, if you examine Scripture, not just the Ten Commandments, but Genesis to Revelation, you read the Word. He will show you that you have broken the law. You've broken it. I've broken it. And there's a cost to our sin. And though the sacrifices made at the covenant renewal are powerful and wonderful and display a lot, none of them complete the work. Hebrews 10, 1-3 says, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not, see, would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year. 
There's a cost to our sin. And we can't pay it. These sacrifices are just symbols to say we are genuinely repentant and we rely on a God who is our Savior. The people of Israel, when they're on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, they're not thinking, oh, these sacrifices are making us holy. They're making us pure. We are a better people now. No. They have seen God part the waters of the Jordan, knock down walls of Jericho before them while they were singing worship songs. They have seen Ai run and flee at the word of the Lord. Okay? They know it's not in their strength. They are recognizing that if they follow the Lord, they will be blessed. And if they do not, they will be cursed. And there's no amount of sacrifice that can be paid to make them holy before the Lord. They trust a God who is their Savior. Jesus embodies this for us. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. He is the pure and spotless lamb. Back in Genesis, when it talked about the, the sin of man, said there would come one, you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your skull. And that's what happened at Calvary. God was crucified on Golgotha, the place of the skull. And his heel was bruised with, yeah, a nail. But Jesus there defeated sin because he had no sin. He was a perfect sacrifice, pure and holy, had done everything right with no sin, tempted as we are yet without sin. But that's not where it stopped for us. It wasn't about this example of a pure life that Jesus lived. More than that is that he both is a sacrifice, but also defeated death and the grave. So with a lot of context and a lot of background of what the law does for us and how insufficient we are to fulfill it and how, yeah, it's good for our, our flourishing and, and it, you know, it can uh, challenge our relationships with each other. We are broken and we cannot fulfill it. It's not possible. You and I both know it's not possible for us to fulfill this law. And there is a cost to our sin that we cannot pay. And I challenge you, encourage you, in the gospel, Jesus has paid the penalty for you. Jesus has paid what you owe on the cross. And he has proven that his payment was worthy in his resurrection. And so with that, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want you to close your eyes. And I want you to listen, because there's a lot here. I want you to hear the words of the Lord as Paul is describing how important the resurrection is. Close your eyes. Listen to these words. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are now being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James and then the Apostles, and last of all, as one to untimely born, He also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all may be made alive. But in each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain he accepted those things that are in subjection under him. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? In what body do they come? You foolish person, how, does, how do you sow not, uh, how, how, what you sow does not come to life until it dies? And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals and birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly another. There's glory of the sun and another of the moon, of the stars that differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, that is us. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. 
but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the, and then the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven. As, a, as the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, the mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law testifies that we are broken and separated from our Creator. We go our own way and we think it is right. God has revealed to us what is right. It is plain. It is simple. It is easy. He speaks it to our hearts. He's written it in His Word. He's given us parents and loved ones and churches to proclaim the truth and majesty of His Word. And yet all of it is for nothing if Christ is not raised. And so thanks be to God that this natural body is not all there is. And thanks be to God that this imperishable body that so often goes after sin, so often touches the hot stove, so often listens to not instruction but our own desire, so often breaks the law of God. We cannot pay the cost of our mortal and, perish, or mortal and perishable and natural bodies. We deserve death. The wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And that gift is given because Christ is raised. If he had not been raised, we are preaching in vain, believing in vain, for we'll just return to dust. But Jesus has been raised. Victory has been taken over death. The sting of death is no longer for us. When we pass away in Christ, we are with him in his presence. He has raised us to a new life, a life that listens to our Father in heaven who loves us and cares for us and pours himself out for us. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. For you have died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. He has been raised, and so you too have been raised to a new life, an eternal life that starts today, that gives you a hope that is beyond anything you're facing, any circumstance, any illness, any broken relationship. His eternal hope and His resurrection is given to you as a gift, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because He has. curse of sin is upon our earth. If you've come to know Christ, you see very clearly at some point in your life something switched. You realized how you were going after your own way, trusting in your own effort, thinking that you were right and everyone else was wrong. And then you met Jesus. And he said, go and sin no more. Then you met Jesus. And he said, I will bear your cross. This bread, it's my body, broken for you. This blood, this juice, this wine, it's my blood, poured out for you. The disciples thought this was some symbol, thought this was some idea, some teaching. In truth, it was what he's going to do for us. Die on a cross Pay the cost of our sin. Remove the curse of our sin and give us eternal life that we can walk in this very day. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Because of Jesus. You have nothing to fear. Trust Him. If you don't trust Him today, please trust Him. No words I say, no songs we sing, no prayers we pray. He can make the decision for you. beautiful thing about the gospel is that he doesn't force it on us. He sets it there before us and says, this is a beautiful thing. You should take it. You should receive it. You should walk in it. You should trust it. It's the most valuable thing in all the earth. The God of heaven came down and died for you. 
died a death that you deserved. And three days later, he was raised. He defeated the curse of sin that is upon us. Place your faith in him this morning. Trust him with your life. He's not up there creating rules to make you have a bad time. He created you that you would flourish, that you would love those he's placed around you with all that you are, and that he could bless you and pour out his favor upon you, both now and in eternity. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your belief. He is worthy of all that you can give him with every breath of your life. Trust this risen Jesus today. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, so thankful that it convicts and challenges and encourages us. So thankful that when we are weak, you are strong. we trust you this morning. Instead of breaking for prayer right now, I just continued, I'll just ask you to continue to sit in prayer for a moment before we move into communion. The risen Lord is speaking to you today. He wants you to know that He loves you, gave His life for you. Some of you know that already, so take a time to sit and thank Him. Just like Justin started out this morning, thank you, Jesus. We don't deserve you. Maybe you need to follow him this morning. Repent. Tell him you repent. And that you need to change your life. That you need to follow Jesus. give a couple minutes of silence and prayer and then we'll enter into communion together. <laughs> 